You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 45 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 24th of April, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Harrison Avery. Hello, hello. Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. And Asher King. 45 episodes. We didn't say on episode 42 that it was, of course, the answer to the life, the universe, and everything, according to Douglas Adams. So I do feel that we should point out that episode 45 is exactly the number of presidents in the United States. And let's hope that this episode goes a little bit better than the presidency. I've had a lot of people asking me about my wave I caught the other day. It was a very good wave. I started it off with a very long, drawn-out bottom turn. Nobody draws out their bottom turns more than I do. I hit the lip very hard, very, very hard how I hit the lip. The fins came out. The fins always come out when I hit the lip. I don't know why. Probably because I rip. I went into a very nice barrel, very big, scary, hollow barrel, but I wasn't scared. I'm never scared when I'm surfing. And I came out. People doubted me. They didn't think I was going to make it out, but I did. Uh, the number of presidents that we're on right now, not the number of presidents in the United States. We don't currently have 45 presidents. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Actually, this is technically episode 45 again. Um, and I apologize to you guys and to the listeners for the rather long gap between episode 44. We did record an episode a couple of weeks ago and then something went wrong in the edit and uh, we, we basically lost the recording. Anyway. Oh, bad work blames his tools. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, we are back. We are back. We've got lots to catch up on. There's been two World Tour contests. There's been lots of things in the news. Uh, but first of all, what have you guys been up to? Anyone, uh, anyone been up to much? You bought a new board, Ash? After a year hiatus, I've bought a new surfboard. It's been a long time. I think it's been since I was preparing for Indo last year that I got a new board. But yeah, I bought a, a 5.2 keel fin fish, a, a new twin fin. I've been surfing that MR so much. And I just love the speed that a, a twin fin gives you. So I, I kind of consider an MR more of a, a high-performance hybrid. So I went to just the furthest point of the spectrum. So I got the most classic <laughs> Rich Pavel Keelfish twin fin made by Trimcraft Surfboards. So yeah, I'm very excited about that. How are you? How are you getting it down here? Because getting boards to Costa Rica is always a, uh, a bit tricky. Ah, oh, it's been the the hardest process ever. Lo- luckily, Harrison uh, is going to be muling my surfboard down. Uh, oh, are you think... bringing stuff down for Asher as well? I am. Yeah, I actually also ordered a new surfboard, which. Sadly, I can't say it's been my first in the last year. It's probably more like my sixth or seventh. <laughs> my living room's looking a little bit more like a surf shop than a living room at the moment. But yeah, I also picked up a, a twin fin, a little bit different than Asher's, a little bit more performance-based. It's the DHD Mini Twin 5.3. Still pretty wide. I'd say like a little bit more on the, the Steve List end of the spectrum than maybe the MR end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But very excited about that board. Can't wait to surf it. Yeah, I don't know about your experience, but... And I know that we talked about it in, in episode, I think it was 37 of the podcast, which I actually was not present for. But uh, I, I think it's very, very tough ordering boards online sometimes. I mean, there's certain metrics that you have. You know, we, you obviously know the length, the width, the volume, which uh, Trimcraft does not provide. But there's so much vocabulary that's not provided on the surfboard that it's, it's really, really difficult to know what you're buying. We're all big fans of Firewire but I was on there last night looking at boards and, and they have their volume calculator, 
you know, and even that the, the vocabulary is really difficult because it says, you know, how good a surfer are you? Beginner, intermediate, advanced. And like we've talked on the show a million times before about how frustrating the whole concept of being an intermediate surfer is. Yeah. It's basically anyone who's done a week's beginner course up to not being a pro is pretty much a, an intermediate well, I, surfer. I guess the problem is it's not defined, is it? Because well, exactly. what, what Channel Islands means by intermediate might be different from what Firewire means, which might be different to what someone sitting in their living room trying to order a board means and then it asks you what your fitness is are you like below average fitness average fitness above average fitness yeah again which is like just depends who your mates are really doesn't it yeah, yeah. you look at yourself in the mirror like oh you know i think i'm, I'm above average or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think it's got everything to do with just your levels of self-confidence or self-denial <laughs> call some friends over hey my above average fitness what do you think <laughs> i don't know nothing it kind of reminded me of when I grew up, I, I had a really good relationship with a shaper in, in Jacksonville, Florida, Wisnet Surfboards. And for probably five or six years, I, I got nothing but shortboards from this one guy. And it was so much fun going in there and kind of taking a little bit off the tail of the last one or, or you know, noticing that the rails were too hard in one edge. And it, it, it was really nice to have that kind of shaper surfer relationship. And I, I do miss it a lot. So when I was a kid, uh, there was this record shop on Park Street in Bristol. And I used to go in there. It's called Rival Records. And the owner was this really cool guy. And every time I would go in on a Saturday after I'd got my, my paycheck on a Friday, he would like, have this big stack of vinyls. And he'd be like, you'll, you'll love this stuff. And I would and I'd go and I'd put my headphones on. And I would spend a few hours like, going through all of these records one by one, deciding mm -hmm. you know, which one or two I was going to buy. And, you know, and, and that record shop shut down now, like a lot of record shops. And it's been replaced by algorithms on spotify and various other similar kind of systems online and while you might argue that there's a certain beauty and soul to that kind of organic relationship one-on-one -on -one, actually the algorithm on spotify does what he did every bit as well arguably better and is way more scalable and it means that people who aren't lucky enough to have met that one individual who really cared about music uh, and sort of mentored me can have that wonderful experience so while, you know, that romanticism of that little small town record shop is lost, I would actually argue that the, the, what's replaced it is a thousand times better. But with surfboards, that same relationship is now a, a, an inflection point where it needs to be replaced. But there is no system in place. There is no Spotify algorithm for surfboards. I, I think this is just a big hole waiting for someone to step into it. Yeah, that's, that's sort of my point is that um, obviously progressing forward it's only going to become more online retail and i think it's really important that that vocabulary is developed because it's really easy to kind of feel the tail and be like oh maybe it's a little too hard there whether it is or whether it isn't but it, the idea that you can't see that on let's say firewire's website i mean when you look at firewire's websites they don't even give you nose and tail width they they just give you width and leaderage in the middle of the surfboard so there's just this massive gap of of, of information here so I, I really think the time is now that that starts to get improved on i've been having a, a couple of very interesting conversations with a few different people about various aspects of surfboard design and how you might measure them a little bit more accurately than they they currently are and one of the things we were talking about was the importance of measuring you know having a feel for the surface area of a board mm -hmm. But then at the same time, you have the problem that actually, depending on what the board's doing at any given time, the surface area that's in contact with the water changes. You know, if you're in a hard bottom turn, the surface area is very different to if you're trimming down the line. And that's very different to if you're, um, you know, really planing out and trying to get the board level with the surface. But um, it seems to me like this whole thing with, with, you know, curating boards a bit like Spotify does with music, there would be a really good 
like a fairly simple app that you could build for a phone where you, you log your sessions and you let it know what board you've been riding. And it, it would be harder with custom boards, but if it was, you know, a Firewire board or a Channel Islands board where, you know, the dimensions are all fairly well known, you, you know the board. And then uh, it would be self-reported data, but then it's, it, it's pretty subjective how a board feels under your feet anyway. But if you had an app where you could say, like, how big were the waves? Enter that in. How many waves did you catch? Enter that in. How did the board feel through turns? Give it some metrics. Mm -hmm. And then six months down the line, it could probably start telling you, if you, if you then went into it and said, okay, it's head high today, it could probably start telling you, you might find this board or this board better than the board that you're using. I think that there's way too many variables for that to work. Yeah, I think they're probably, to, to work perfectly, yeah. But you've got to start somewhere. To work even at all would be a stretch. Yeah, I would. I think I can see two big limitations off the top of my head in cost of getting enough boards to, to actually get the data on this. You know, trying out ten boards, you, mm -hmm. you talk, that's like almost ten thousand dollars to put in, and ten boards isn't even very many to to try. Um, and getting the repetition to have your data actually be worth something. Like, and I surf almost every day. I, I, I try to surf twice a day, and I have a tough enough time pushing a board in similar conditions enough to get a good feel for it. So I think it'd be really, really hard for someone to get used to their thruster riding it once a week versus a twin fin that they're riding maybe once every other week. Right, but it wouldn't, if you take all the people out there that are riding a Hayden Shapes Hypto Crypto and they're all inputting that information, then now suddenly you've actually got a critical mass to say, all right, where does that, uh, there are going to be outliers, there's going to be guys like Craig Anderson that are taking off in stupid Indonesian 20-foot barrels but the majority of users are going to report the best performance out of that board in a, in a certain set of conditions. If you're riding a Hypto Crypto and you're saying, oh, I'm having this problem, there's also going to be a whole load of stuff that sort of suggests that maybe getting onto a, a shortboard, a, a more traditional shortboard, might help. I'm not saying it's a perfect system, but it's a start. The question is, would there be so much noise in the data that it became impossible to tease out a meaningful yeah. signal? That's really the ultimate question. Yeah, and you wouldn't possibly. really know till you tried it. But, but I think that you know, a couple of the big problems that you'd have is, number one, the things that you want to do when you're going out surfing change wildly. And what might be a really successful surf for you one day might be a terrible surf for you the next day. I mean, like, I, I might have a day where I'm working at my computer all day and then it's nearly dark and I, and I know it's kind of onshore and I know the waves aren't that good, but I just grab my bonzer and I want to go out because I just really want to like paddle hard and I want to get out of breath and I want to come in and sit down for dinner feeling like hungry and tired and I maybe even want to go over the falls on a few and just get <laughs> yeah. smashed around, you know? And then there's other times I go out when I really want to work on performing top turns. And sort of how stoked you are with the surf has got so much to do with what you want to get out of that surf. I mean, how many times have you guys gone down the beach and the waves are pumping and you're like, this is going to be sick. And then you go out and you actually don't have that good a session. Oh. And how many times have you gone down and it doesn't look good and you're like, oh, this is going to suck, but I'm just going to go and paddle around and have a workout and you get out and you're really stoked. And so you're going to be putting down numbers that are self-reported, you know, levels of satisfaction or, or mm -hmm. enjoyment out of any session that are so based on your expectations going in. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be, it's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah. Quickly into the news then, one of the big things that's happened while we've been off air is that the Simmer Awards have taken place, the Surf Industry Manufacturers Association Awards. Uh, they happen every year and it's kind of just the industry patting itself on the back, I think. Um, 
various different products are put forward at various different companies, but it's always interesting to see what is awarded and what isn't. Do you guys have a look over it, over the list? Yeah. Yeah, some interesting ones in there. I just noticed that the longboard of the year was the Wingnut Nose Rider by yes, Firewire, indeed. which a couple of the coaches currently own as their personal go-to um, longboards. Yeah, and we've got I one at the resort. take issue with that. And I'm a massive fan of Firewire, and I'm a massive fan of Wingnut. And I don't think that either uh, Wingnut or Firewire listen to the show, so we can probably say whatever we want. But <laughs> having surfed a Wingnut Nose Rider for a while and then buying a Bing Levitator, I would say the Bing Levitator as a Nose Rider is just like in a different league. Just yeah, way, would, uh, way, way better Nose Rider. Yeah, I, I think even from the tail, the, 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 the Bing Levitator probably have a lot more advantages. I like the the Bing Levitator more. I'd, I'd say the Wingnut Nose Rider is easier to surf mm-hmm. and is easier to turn, particularly. That, that, that Bing Levitator is not an easy board to do any kind of cutback on. But just in terms of trim, trimming and going down the line and walking to the nose, it's incredible. It makes you feel like you're so good at nose riding when you're not. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say. Which is what I like about it. Just eyeing up the list, the, another board that was on there um, in contention was the Takayama in the pink, which I own. And I personally find it much easier to nose ride than the Wingnut Nose Rider. Um, yeah. I think the the Wingnut Nose Rider is a really fun board and it actually turns surprisingly easily. Um, but I don't know if it's the easiest Nose Rider or maybe even the best Nose Rider. But yeah. it's, you know, Longboard of the Year. So For if it was Longboard of the Year, it's like the best all-around Longboard. Takayama in the Pink should win that award every year <laughs> until something better comes around. Takayama in the Pinks have been the best all-around Longboard since the mid-90s. That was actually my first real Longboard was a Takayama in the Pink and I still have one hanging in my bedroom today. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a pretty safe bet. See, now, I, I'm not quite sure what the voting, you know, how the voting for these Simmer Awards works, but I believe there's a certain aspect of sales in there on the on the boards. There was a lot of Billabong products doing very well for the down the list. I was, yeah. I, I was going to start like reaching around to see if there was like a bit of Billabong sponsorship going on there somewhere. Well, so here's the thing. When we spoke to Wingnut a few episodes ago and uh, myself and Ash were chatting to him in the water, I was talking to him and he was talking about how he had stashed boards all around the world so that he never had to travel with them. He'd go to one place mm-hmm. once, leave the boards. And we we turned up when we were in Peru. He'd been there a couple of weeks before and there were a load of his firewire boards. So if it's based on sales, is this just Wingnut stashing his own <laughs> yeah. boards all around the world? Wow, there's been a lot of... <laughs> I sales everywhere of this nose rider. <laughs> okay, next up in the news, uh, we had a couple of injuries within the industry. Uh, Dane Reynolds managed to break a couple of vertebrae while surfing at Pipeline, late season swell at Pipeline, which looked amazing actually for April. Pipe was pumping. Yeah, but leave it to Dane Reynolds to make breaking your tailbone look cool. <laughs> they made it into a, it was like a it, that's his company former's big ad campaign now it's like heavy metal and him breaking his tailbone and then like showing up his bruised ass on camera and you're like whoa that, you're yeah, that video of him getting out of the water he looks like mildly perturbed i would say yeah sort of like oh broken my spine again uh, oh well all part of the fun <laughs> classic dane classic classic me yes indeed <laughs> Have, have, um, we got, have we got that the video from that April 1st session at Pipe? Because we, we definitely do. should have it. It's yeah. amazing. I will, uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, and Russell Bjorki had a, a near drowning uh, surfing, a pretty heavy looking slab down in Victoria. So best of luck recovering to both of those guys. And hopefully they'll be back in the water soon. One of the things that we always tell people when we're coaching, you know, is 
whenever you're at the top of a wave looking down it if it looks steep that's not the time to be second guessing yourself and you should always go mm -hmm. and the time to decide not to go on a wave is if you're looking back at it over your shoulder while you're paddling and you decide oh i've misjudged this it's too steep or if you're looking down the line and of course the wave's closing out but what you don't ever want to do is be looking over the ledge thinking this is too steep i'm not going to go because even though you might be right to think that on the odd occasion the aggregate of that over time is that you get into the habit of second guessing yourself at the top of waves and although you might save yourself going over the falls on a few ultimately the effect it'll have on your surfing is that you'll pull back on a lot of waves that you could have gone on and, and it'll slow your progress down and you'll miss out on basically some of the best waves of your life having said that Dane Reynolds probably should have pulled back on that wave. Yeah, well, and possibly Russell Bjorki as well, who uh, took off into a huge, horrible slab that just swallowed him whole and then uh, banged his head on his board underwater. I don't think pulling back on waves is really in Russell Bjorki's vocabulary. <laughs> no, I don't think so. That's uh, pretty cool. A um, few interesting little products just come out on the market. Someone has finally created a box that will allow you a little insert to go into a futures fin box, which means you can then put FCS fins in which personally I think is long overdue. I had that idea a long time ago, and uh, I'm surprised it's taken this long. I am also very happy to see that come out. I'm a little confused, though. In the article, they say that it's compatible with FCS2 fins, but looking at the photo, it looks like your classic two-tab FCS fin. Yeah, I couldn't quite work I that thought that as either. well. I think that's a typo. I can't, because okay. you... No, I mean, FCS1 and Future Fins are now, are now as archaic as DVDs. Basically, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know you how useful it is. FCS2 is just totally. Oh, that impressive. being said, my new keel fin has features box because there are a lot no more, keels. Yeah, there's no keel fins through FCS2 available yet. Huh, they need to start making some more. They need FCS2 need to make some more single fins as well. Yeah, Kumano fin system has kind of hacked the FCS2 idea of the, the click in single fins. And for me, with, with FCS2, they didn't really have a very extensive longboard fin range and kumano just aftermarket adapts to any longboard fin and yeah i think that's a really incredible product yeah, yeah that's awesome traveling around indo with a single fin which i did a couple of years ago i hadn't done before um i had one of the fcs2 connect to like clicking fins and mm -hmm. it was just so useful like sticking it on cars and boats and you know in the front of the boats when everyone's got their boards stacked up and yeah. you're always like sorry i need three spaces for my nine inch fin yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah they, they only have that one fin shape which is kind of annoying so yeah no, they've, um, got, they've got quite a few now i oh, do they yeah but yeah drd4 is a fin company that's actually partnered up with kumano fins and i, I recommended it to carrie ann our, our resort bookings manager and she's ordered i think three different fins from them to click in at different points and i i just think that is a phenomenal product so if anybody's looking for a, a new single fin speaking of phenomenal products although this wasn't included in the seam rewards lift has just introduced the world's first electronic foil and it's it's got a little 48 second video which we'll put in the show notes of this guy just cruising along with some in black and white with some nice smooth jazz in the background so i feel like the black and white and the smooth jazz is should be like key to riding this thing yeah uh, it it, it so it's yeah so it's fun. a hydrofoil board but there's a little electric motor down in the bottom of the hydrofoil to actually keep you up on the plane. And it does, it does look quite cool, doesn't it? Um, I thought I, well, I'm definitely going to get one of those. That's just, <laughs> that's a given. That's a given, obviously. So I went onto their website where you can't buy one yet, but you can pre-order one. Did you guys have a look at this? No, Does I haven't. anyone want to just take a guess at how much it costs? I bet it's Ooh. much more expensive than I would guess. I was going to say 3000 but... I was thinking originally the two to three thousand kind of range, and I was yeah. like, I don't, I could probably stretch to three grand for something this fun. Twelve thousand dollars. 
12,000. $12,000. And I always think any company that's doing pre-orders, it's like there's a 50-50 chance you're never going to get it. Yeah, you that know? seems a little excessive, doesn't it? But man, that does look pretty cool. Final piece of new technology is Wavegarden have released some artist renderings of their, their next project that they're bringing out, which is, a, whereas with their previous waves and Kelly's waves, they're sort of linear. Um, this looks more like a sort of traditional wave pool with, with waves expanding out from the middle. So they're using the they're using the wave garden technology, and they're not they're specifically not going with the Kelly Slater technology. And Andrew Ross, who's the executive chairman of Urban Surf, um, which is the company producing the whole thing, um, was sort of a little bit derisive about the, the Kelly Slater wave pool when he was talking about it. Well, I, th- I think the important thing is they're not actually going with wave garden or Kelly Slater. They're not going with the existing wave garden technology, which is a foil under the water. This is wave garden as a company have come up with a new technology that doesn't, I, as far as I'm aware, doesn't involve dragging a foil through the bottom of the pool. So, so the big claim here, the big difference is the amount of waves they say they can generate. So, uh, so this guy, Andrew Ross, says, he told Stab Magazine, uh, at a maximum frequency of four seconds, the wave generator is capable of producing a thousand advanced waves per hour, both lefts and rights, which is an order of magnitude improvement over other technologies. A thousand waves per hour is a wave every 3.6 seconds. And a wave every four seconds is not a thousand waves an hour, it's 900 waves an hour. It's a reasonable rounding up, I think, for a press statement. I think that aside, a wave every four seconds is way too fast. I mean, imagine what kind of swell period four seconds looks like in a pool. One, imagine if two, you fall three. off how lightly you are to get run over by the person <laughs> on the wave behind. Yeah, you're near thinking, yeah. on their hydrofoil with the sword attached to the bottom. It's <laughs> a bad I, day. I think, I think really the, the point is that, that because it's not using a mechanical wing that's being dragged along on the bottom, my guess is they're probably using compressed air. The mechanical mechanism that generates the waves in a wave garden or Kelly Slater's pool, like has a limit as to how quick you can run the foil along, oh, okay. turn oh, it round yeah, and you. send it back. So there is, there, there is no way to create a wave more than once about every 30, 40 seconds. Mm-hmm. In fact, because of the design of the pools, they tend to run it slower than that to allow the water to settle down and, and clean up a little bit. With the new wave garden one, they can theoretically produce a wave every four seconds. Obviously, that's not practical in terms of people catching waves, mm. but it means that it, that... A wave every 15 seconds is clearly well within their ability. Okay. So I'm massively skeptical of all artificial wave generating technologies until they find one that doesn't break mm-hmm. every five minutes. I think that's fair. Just the final thing in the news then, and I only bring this up because it's an interesting change to the standard. Um, Alex Gray had a whole load of surfboards broken on a flight recently. And we've all been there. We've all had board stings. The interesting thing here was he kicked up a little bit of a stink and eventually got $3,500 back from American Airlines Ash. for the damage to his boards. That's pretty good. Yeah. I wonder if that's setting a precedent that we can all follow. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, that's what I find interesting is that, that now that that's happened, I wonder if that opens things up. I've, uh, I've been reimbursed by American Airlines. Yeah. Um, I had, I think, it, it was probably nearly 10 years ago, but I was taking a longboard back from California and when I opened the board bag it's the board looked like shattered glass it was in as many pieces as a longboard could possibly be like it clearly got run over and then run over again and yeah they they sent me a check for for over the value of the surfboard so that was that was pretty cool I did not have that much luck I had a, a board snapped in half by I can't remember what airline it was now but I remember waiting hours to file a claim um, they said wait a couple weeks and just never heard back it was kind of a bummer 
Do you think United will be reimbursing people? <laughs> I don't know. You might get beat up if you ask. So on the contest front, there's been quite a lot of activity in the WSL since we've last met up. We had uh, the West Oz event in Margaret River, which was won by John John Florence over Chloe Andino. And then in the women's event, Sally Fitzgibbons took out Tyler Wright in the final. And then Bells. Bells Jordy Smith beat Kiowa Belly. And Courtney Conalog took out Steph Gilmore in the finals. And other than the actual results, there was a couple big takeaways for me. First of which was the quality of the waves that the WSL has been getting this year. Oh, it's been amazing. Yeah, it's been it's been amazing. And you can really, really see who the best surfers are in, in, in the quality waves. Don't worry, they're going to Rio next. So that'll yeah. bring the average back. <laughs> Actually, it, they're going to Sakurima. It's I mean, not Rima right. this yeah, year. Yeah, that's Rima right. this year. Yeah. So it, I, certainly with the Margaret River, you know, everyone's always been very skeptical about that. It got bumped up from a, a WQS event a few years ago. And I don't, you know, barring that, was it two years ago when they did a couple of rounds at the box? Mm-hmm. But other than that, like it's really been a very average contest. And then this year, you know, the last time we were on air, we were getting excited because they might go to North Point. Mm-hmm. And they did. And that one round at North Point was pretty cool. But actually, main break, Head and a half to double overhead. Main break. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. Yeah, and for the listeners that didn't see the event, John John Florence had a pretty dominant performance. And I I don't think we need to rehash too much of it, but he basically, to me, redefined the way that that wave is surfed and and, and the approach. You could see that a lot of his competitors were drawing a very traditional bottom turn. They're, They're going to the bottom of the wave and really putting it on edge for a vertical approach. And John John was using these mid-face bottom turns, which in turn caused him to lose a lot less speed and then have a much more horizontal approach at the shoulder. And it, it was just beautiful in those big conditions. I thought he did some of the best turns I've ever seen anyone do. Yeah, in, um, in competition for sure. And, and, and actually, um, a, a good friend of the show, Spencer Klein, who works very closely with John John and was with him at Snapper, although not at Margaret River. I think he was back, in, back on the North Shore then. But he and I were chatting earlier in the season and he, he, we, we were just chatting about John John's equipment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and after that Margaret River event, I, I texted him and I was like, yeah, those turns are just amazing. Like those are the best turns I've ever seen. It seemed to work. And Spencer said, yeah, I've had all of these messages, all of these people coming up to me and coming up to John saying the same thing. And John's just like, that is my standard go-to turn. If I'm surfing at Rockies and I set up for the barrel and there's no barrel, that's just my go-to turn. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Like if you watch that last episode of... Uh, 12 you know the Hurley series of John John and there's all that footage of him surfing out in Hawaii a lot of it's on the North Shore but he's doing those same turns I, I don't know why you just I guess the difference is that when you see those kinds of maneuvers in a free surfing edit you're not seeing them being done that often and then you see them getting edited together in, in a mm-hmm. free surfing edit and it looks amazing and I suppose we're just not used to seeing someone who's so good at them that they can pull them out of the bag in, in heats. As well as in a video part you don't really get to see the contrast as well you don't really get to see you know, the, world, the world's second best or third best surfer and compared to John John, how different those turns actually look. I think the other side as well is that we really haven't had in the last couple of years an event where he can showcase that turn properly. You know, that, that turn needs a big, punchy, walled-up wave. And on the World Tour, we haven't really seen that, whereas Margaret River just delivered it heat after heat after heat, the opportunity for him to come out and put the board on rail like that. Yeah, I think that event was cool because it really gave John an opportunity to showcase how well he surfs big, powerful waves, which I think especially in the final when he was up against Kolohe, who was ripping through the whole event as well, 
you could see that spread just pretty blatantly. Like John and, and you were mentioning, Harry, that a lot of the Hawaiian surfers did really well in that event because it's similar to waves that they're used to surfing. You know, it's a big, powerful wave that requires a surfer to take a lot of power into it, which is, I think, why like Michelle Perez has done well there in the past as well. But I think John, especially compared to Kolohe in the final, was he was drawing a line that was appropriate for the size of the wave. Like he yes. was drawing out his turns and carrying power through it, whereas a lot of other surfers you'd see were carrying a lot of speed into their turns, but their their turns had a much smaller arc. They weren't able to carry as much speed through their turns as John. Yeah. And then the Margaret River contest pretty much went to the end of the waiting period, so we weren't really left with much time off between Margaret River and Bells. And I think it was about three days, wasn't it? Between yeah, one it was, and the other. It was I mean, pretty. which is barely enough time to really get all your boards and everything over there. Mm. And then Bells followed with amazing surf as well. John John continued his performance. His heat against Mick Fanning, I think it was a round four heat in the three-man where he, he nipped him in the last second by doing definitely the biggest air ever at Bells. <laughs> did, you, did you see John John and Mick in the changing room afterwards? Yeah, on the absolutely. Video? <laughs> it's just, he's like, oh, good heat, Mick. And Mick was just joking around and said something like, oh, you're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <he's, laughs> but, um, but all in very good humor. Uh, that tour notes video is really, really fun to watch, actually. Yeah. You know, you really get such a sense that all of those guys are, are, are really kind of tight and they're good friends. And yeah, uh, you, you, yeah it looks like, a, looks like a lot of fun to be on that tour. I mean, it's exactly what the WS needs is what engages people is a yeah. storyline and, and, and an engaging story and the tour notes really gives you everything b behind the event which is an incredible story yeah um jordy smith won his bell he's no longer the best surfer to not win a bell what did you guys think about his mid-wave claim in the final mid-wave ringing the bell with 15 <laughs> minutes left in the heat i thought uh, that's, that's confidence I yeah, think he that was is pretty confidence. fired up in that final he was yeah. surfing amazing but kaio abelli was surfing pretty well too yeah, he, he really impressed me. He's, he surfs really well on rail. That, that, I thought that was very moving. Speaking of the tour notes, actually, there was a little clip of Kyo Belly calling his dad just before he went in for the final. And, yeah. uh, you know, he was like, He's win or lose, up. I'm just, I'm so proud to have, to have achieved this. Uh, and I just really wanted to share it with my dad. And yeah, I felt myself getting a little misty eyed yeah. looking at that bit. Now, yeah. I, on the subject of, of the Bells contest, uh, we had a really interesting situation on the women's side of things. Going in after Margaret River, we had Sally and Steph tied for the lead on the world tour and so they both ended up surfing in the yellow jersey that denotes the tour leader and you know at the end of it now Steph is obviously now out in front so it's just the one but the one thing it did make me realize is that there's now going into all of these events Tyler Wright has nothing to show that she's the defending world champion I totally agree with you and I feel that they should switch it so that unlike the Tour de France what they should do is whoever's world champion wears the yellow jersey for the whole of the next year. Because the whole point of the world's tour is you want to put as much prestige on being world champion as possible. The yeah. more prestige you put on it, then the more meaning there is to the whole tour because the more glory there is at the end of it and the more drama you can create building up to it. So I'd like to see John John now as world champion wearing that yellow jersey all the way through the year, being referred to as the world champion and like the whole way through the year, he gets 12 months of, of that, of well, that now, title. You know what I mean? Because now it almost feels like as soon as someone wins at Snapper, they call them number one in the world. And it's almost like the world, the world title was only valid for that so tiny they, break between Pipe and Snapper. So they used to have the system where the number on your back denoted was your finishing position the previous year. Oh, I like that. And so John John would wear number one 
for the entire year. Now, the downside is that also means the guys that barely qualified are also stuck walking around with a 36 on their back, even if they are now winning the tour. So I, the one thing I did think would be cool is, you know how in soccer, it, oh, oh, I'm getting corrupted, football. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Thank uh, you very much. You know, well, but, but on the, in the World Cup, if, you, if the national team has won the World Cup, you have a star over your emblem on, on the jerseys. Mm. And maybe we could have something like that so that John John still continues to wear the number 12, but maybe he can have like a big star to show that he's won a world title. Why in the not past. stick him in the yellow jersey all year? Because I think that there is some merit to saying, you know, John John and Steph right now are three events in, they are leading the tour. And I think that that is, that is very relevant when you sit and watch the Rio contest to I know that you're looking at the current ratings leader. I, I agree with you very much that the yellow jersey is just premature to award it after one contest. Like I like it, the expression, I agree with you very much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank um, you very much. Yeah, maybe they could much. stagger it like they do with the seating. Maybe it could be after the second leg of the world tour, after the, the Pacific leg, it could be a prestigious moment where they award the yellow jersey for the rest of the season because it is kind of weird to see someone in the, you know, after one good contest result. I mean, the other alternative is, is to have, you know, Tour de France, you've got the King of the Hill contest, you know, the spotted jersey for the, the guy that's doing best on the mountain stages. But maybe you could have a, a gold jersey for whoever's winning the title at the moment and a, another color for last year's world champion. And, yeah. and then every now and then you'd hit the problem like you have now where John John, where you might have to have a two tone. Yeah, the you, have brown, yellow. you have a brown jersey for anyone who came 33rd in the last contest. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the topic of the WSL making improvements, that is what impressed me most after the last two events. Um, you can see that they're really uh, putting in the effort to, to bring up the viewer experience. Like we In West Oz, they made every effort to go to North Point. You know, it, even though it wasn't North Point, like amazing 10 out of 10 North Point, it showed that they're willing to make that effort. And it's, it was, it's been a point of contention in the, in the past. In the past, surfers were like, oh, well, look at these pictures of you know, North Point free surfs. And now the viewer can see that, you know, even though North Point looked amazing in the free surfs, that's a, that could be a wave that comes in every 45 minutes. Mm. And that it is the conditions that allows it to be contestable um, throughout the event. Um, they tried to move to the box and they would actually show the box and say that, hey, look, there are great waves coming in but and we want to move there. But for us to run there, there needs to be six opportunities in 35 minutes. You know, there has to be six waves that come through. And over the last hour, there were, there were five rideable waves. So I really like that, that, that they are putting in that effort. They ran a lot of the Bells event at Winky Pop and kind of structured the tides around doing those windows at Winky Pop. I thought as well, just some of the commentary team that they've got up and running now. Uh, you know, they've obviously oh, they're doing great. lost Ross Williams, but, but actually the, the technical commentary coming from guys like Barton Lynch and... From... Barton Lynch is always so happy every uh. time he starts talking. <laughs> yeah. He's just so full of joy. He's like Australia's favourite grandfather. <laughs> but I, I mean, Didn't I... Kelly Slater call him the David Attenborough of post-heat interviews? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, he did. <laughs> but I, I thought he did a... You know, I thought Barton Lynch did a fantastic job. I think Pete Mel has really stepped up into Ross Williams' shoes as, as you know, the, the, the technical analysis guy ronnie blakey's grown a bit of an opinion yeah I, you know i i think you brought this up asher i think after the snapper contest but the extent to which they're talking about the technique of surfing you know when somebody does something impressive mm -hmm. they're really talking about 
how and why that surfer's doing that and why that is is giving them the points. An interesting one. Did uh, you guys see the the interview with Rosie Hodge as to why she's not doing the tour at the moment? I did see that. Yeah. yeah. The, what a what a strange story. What did yeah. she say? So you'll she, love this one. Yeah, you'll love. So <laughs> she's Australian. She's married to an American guy. She's been advised by her lawyer not to leave the country at the moment because of all the travel bans and the immigration stuff, and to just stay in the country because she's still in the process of getting full citizenship wow. through her marriage. And she's just been advised to, to don't don't leave the country. Thanks, Donald Trump. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my God. Ruining surfing for all of us. I remember, what, was, what was it, Matt Warshaw? And he was right when he was writing about the Tahiti contest last year. And he's writing, he, was, he did a really savage but very funny critique of the WSL commentary team. And then he said, and every time Rosie Hodge opens her mouth, all I hear is a choir of angels singing. <laughs> <laughs> um, a big moment for me in the, the last leg was... Did anybody see the round four heat where Zeke Lau was given an interference on Philippe Toledo in the last couple of milliseconds, and then it was later reversed in that heat? I did, and I think the reason they gave was the judging booth. I guess the timing was off between when they heard the horn and the video feed they were getting, and so when they'd corrected for that, they actually reversed the call because yeah. they found that their timing was off between their sound and video feed. It was yeah, it was a really strange situation. It was basically... Um, the WSL rulebook states that, obviously, the server with priority can take any wave that they want. However, as soon as the horn sounds, um, all priority is given up. So let's say that I'm wearing blue and I have priority and Rue's wearing red and he doesn't have priority. Rue's surfing up the point and takes off on a wave before the buzzer. I use my priority to block him but the horn sounds right before I stand up, I forfeit my priority, and now it's an interference, me on route. And that's exactly what happened between uh, Philippe Toledo and Zeke Lau. However, I mean, it was, it was just milliseconds. When they put this sound up to the video, Zeke's hands clearly left the rail just a couple seconds before, and they, they still gave him the interference, and um, they brought Richie Porta into the booth, and it was the strangest explanation I've ever heard. Have you guys ever heard that? Or did you hear him? No, I didn't see the bit with Richie Porter. Yeah, he came in and he's like, oh, all right, well, it was like, um, you know. Are you going to go with the Richie yeah, Porter? Yeah, I'm going to go with Aussie the Richie accent? Porter okay. accent, you know. Um, <laughs> he's like, well, Zeke, he, he went off before, but Zeke didn't hear because, I don't know, sound travels kind of like something. It's like 183 meters a second, which it doesn't. Uh, sound travels are 343 meters a second. So I don't know how he just pulled that number out of the blue, but... Richie, boy, you know how many people are watching this. You got to fact check yourself. There, there'd be a lot to. Yeah, there's no excuse for not knowing facts in the age of the internet. Exactly. You know? But even the sound linked up to the video in slow motion, the the, the viewer, it was just clear that his his hands uh, were off the rail first, and and Richie Porter kind of venomously defended it. To which the announcers, Peter Mel, said, "All right, well, can you tell us a bit about the decision? Was it?" You know, was it a split decision? Was it unanimous? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it was split, but I, I changed the minds. That We've talked about this before, the role of a head judge and how the whole idea of blind judging hmm. uh, is defeated by the head judge saying, oh, actually, that was an interference. Yeah. Um, I, I think that was a bit of a weak moment for the WSL, which they more than redeemed themselves by Kieran Perot overturning the call. I also thought it was interesting that he said um, the, the delay Zeke Lau would have of course, I got out Google Maps at the time and drew the distance tool from where the PA system is at the stairs to the takeoff spot. 
and it is 1.14 kilometers from where the PA system is at Bell's Beach contest to where the takeoff zone is. So I love that you worked that out. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, and it, and I, it works out that it's you know 1.14 k, 3.43 meters a second. It's almost three seconds before the sound would have reached Zeke Lau in his heat. So if he's going off the hooter, then that that's a pretty big margin of error. Yeah. There was a, I can't, I, I just remembering, I can't remember, I haven't looked it up, but there was a heat a few years ago where Joel Parkinson got a wave and he thought it was before the buzzer and it was actually after the buzzer and it just came down to that, that delay that it took yeah. for the sound to travel out from the tower out to the lineup. Yeah. Hmm. I think, so listeners, Harry, other than working on the force being exerted on fins with uh, NASA engineers, Harry, you're also working on uh, like an earpiece for coaching. I was just thinking, bearing that in mind, it wouldn't actually be a bad idea if, if competitive surfers had an earpiece when they're out in heats, if it could be small and discreet enough and it just sits in, like, you know, so yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not cumbersome. And then they're not getting like the commentary coming in their ear, obviously, that would be a little off-putting. <laughs> but if they've got, the head judge has just got the ability to say, you know, John now has priority or... Yeah, I think blue, you need yeah. 3.5. So they've just got the data they need. Huh. I think a better way to do that probably would be to mount a speaker on the one of the jet skis. Well, I was thinking about the famous fact where if you stand on, what's the name of the bridge right by Big Ben in London? Westminster Bridge. That's Waterloo the one. Bridge. Either of those. If you stand on the other side of the river looking at Big Ben and you have a radio, you famously will hear Big Ben chime out of the radio before the sound gets to you from the other side of the river. Because mm-hmm. they had, the BBC has a microphone inside Big Ben to, you know, to hear the bell toll. And it takes less time for that to go to BBC Radio Centre, be broadcast out, get to the radio, and then go from the radio to your ear, as it does from the sound to, to just go across the river, go across the bridge. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just thinking about the timing, actually, having something in your ear. I mean, it might sound really pedantic, but when we're talking about the stakes being as high as they are, and you know athletes performing at the level that they're at and you think about how specific the measuring equipment at the olympics is yeah just to wrap that up really quickly in the fantasy surfing at margaret river the small boys won the event there was a 10-way tie for first place in the women's at bells shonuff won the event for the men's and studio shenning and animal chin uh, were tied for first uh Overall, uh, I'm all shacked up. You're in first place for the men's event. I <laughs> love the names. There's some good ones. <laughs> the names uh, are pretty funny. <laughs> and Cruise Surfer is in first overall for the women's. The next event for both the men and the women is Brazil. And the waiting period for that starts on May 9th through to May 20th. Are we going to have a proper prize this year for the winner of the Fantasy Surfer? We might have to have a think about that. Okay. But yeah. My girlfriend's beating me in Fantasy Surfer right now, and she rubs it in a lot. Devastating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing pretty bad. Lauren's beating me pretty good on that, so hoping to mount a late-season comeback. You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast. So I want to talk a little bit about systems versus goals. This is more of an opinion piece than the usual science type banter that I go on. But I think that this is got a lot of plausibility to the claims that that's been made and and this isn't an original idea that i've come up with it's something that you can you can read about online from a bunch of sources but it 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 applies a lot to the coaching we do and i think there's a good take-home for for all of us as surfers even if you're not being coached so first of all i just want to clarify in the context of what i'm about to say exactly what i mean by systems and goals by by a, a system i mean something that you're doing on an ongoing basis 
And by a goal, I mean a finite one-off event, something that you want to achieve that has got a, a definite ending to it. So just for example, if you're a runner, your goal might be to complete the New York Marathon. Your system would be your training schedule on a weekly or monthly basis. If you're an entrepreneur, your goal might be to build a multi-billion dollar business, but your system would be the daily running of the business. If you're a surf coach, your goal might be for the person you're teaching to win a world championship. Your system would be identifying the limiting factors and the drills that you're going to be doing with them on a daily basis. So there is an argument out there, which I find very compelling, although I'm going to add a couple of caveats to it at the end. But the argument basically says, if you ignore focusing on goals completely and you just focus on systems, would you actually do better? Here's the reasons why a lot of people think that's true, myself possibly included. So one is that focusing on goals can actually reduce your happiness. And if nothing else, if you're not enjoying what you do and you stop doing it, you're not going to get better at it. I mean, that's the, that's the first rule of just about anything that you want to take on in life. It also has this kind of feeling like, well, I'm not really good enough until I achieve my goal. And then once I achieve the goal, I'll be successful. So you have this feeling of inadequacy up until the point that you've achieved it, which, you know, again, it is taking away from your enjoyment of the activity um, and arguably your motivation for it. Especially if you have set yourself goals that aren't achievable, you know, in the short term, then very quickly you're going to feel demotivated by it. And of course, if you don't achieve your goals, then you have a, a feeling of failure, which if you haven't got someone really smart working with you to make sure you're setting the right goals is a really easy mistake to make. I don't know how many of our listeners out there had in their head some kind of creative endeavor that they were always just going to do, but never quite got around to, like maybe they were going to paint or be in a band or learn an instrument and learn a language or write a book and they just never got around to it, you know. There's a huge stress involved with having these kind of big goals and you know you could say well what's the point in having goals if they're not quite grandioso but then of course when you have a really intimidating task often it's so intimidating that you you don't even begin like you know there's examples that I just gave that I'm sure we've all got in our life and then the other thing is when you're thinking about what goals will ultimately make you happy as humans we're really really bad at predicting what will make us happy there's some really interesting research on this really conclusive research there's a a scientist uh, and researcher called Dan Gilbert, who does a great TED talk on this. So the second reason why, why goals aren't necessarily a good thing to use is you get what they call the, the yo-yo effect. So you work really, 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 really hard until you, you reach your goal, and then you kind of like drop off quite a lot. So you might be working really hard for a marathon, you know, or it might be that you're on a diet trying to lose weight. You're coming up to a wedding and you want to fit in that dress or whatever. And then as soon as you've achieved the goal, the workload drops right off. And then you start feeling negative about whatever the thing is. So you set a new goal. You start working really, really hard. You reach the goal. And when you have that way of approaching any discipline or skill, it's very difficult to build upon skills you've learned because every time you get to a point, you're then sort of regressing immediately afterwards. Mm -hmm. Dieting is a classic example. So the biggest problem with dieting, if you're trying to lose weight, is that it's not sustainable. Pretty much anyone can lose weight using any fad diet. You know, contrary to a couple of the tweets that I've had come at me after that <laughs> food and science episode, <laughs> if you are burning off more calories than you're consuming, you'll lose weight. That's, that's how it works. And, you know, and if you do that, if you think I'm going to really use willpower and deny myself, you know, having this or that luxury that I really like, you know, and you get down to a certain weight and then you're like, yes, I did it. And then, you know, you put weight back on again. And, that, and that's what you see over and over again. 
the correct way to approach it is to have sustainable new ways of eating that you can keep going over a really long period of time. And actually, that's how I'm trying to approach being a vegetarian, which I became as a result of correspondences with a lot of our listeners after that episode that we did on diet. But that's a whole other thing. Another thing is that goals can often end up putting you under pressure to have control over things that you don't have any control over. So a really obvious example of that is competitors going out and competing for a world title, right? You can't go out and control whether the wave you need is going to come in the last 10 minutes of the heat. You, you just can't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. You can't control how much training your competitor has done. Mick couldn't control how good John John is at doing airs. There are just elements in your life that are outside of your control. And any system that you put in place in surfing and in life generally, you should try and avoid putting yourself in a situation where you're going to ultimately consider yourself a failure or beat yourself up because something went wrong that you didn't have any control over. What you want to be doing instead is having systems that just optimize for the best possible outcomes. And this kind of goes back to when we, the episode, I can't, can't remember which episode it was when we talked about algorithms to surf by, like they, they should, the commentators and coaches shouldn't be saying so-and-so should have gone on this wave. They should be saying, what system was so-and-so using for determining which were the best waves to go on? You know, what would be the aggregate of best waves chosen over a season or a competitive career? Mm. My opinion is, yes, you do actually want to have goals, but you want to just think about them carefully. And once they're set, you want to very quickly turn all your focus onto the system that you're having. So just very quickly to talk about goals, in the context of surf coaching, when we're setting goals for our guests, and this is true for all coaches in different sports, what you want to do is set a goal which is just outside what the person you're coaching thinks they can achieve, but is inside what you know they can achieve. So that when they hit that goal, and you do want to have goals that people are going to hit, then they feel really good about it. It's motivating them to move forwards. But it's a very, very difficult thing to do. When we have guests come along who've got quite low expectations, it's, it's really easy. We just pin a goal that's slightly ahead of where their expectations are. We know they're going to get there. They don't think they will. They get there and they're really happy. Conversely, obviously, it's much more difficult when we have someone come along who's got very, very high, unrealistic expectations. And then, of course, the first thing we need to do is to bring those expectations down to something more realistic and then to pin a goal in there that's slightly ahead of where those expectations are. And the way that we most effectively do that is that we will explain to someone, we won't say to someone, oh, look, you want to go out and get tubed and you've been surfing for a week. That's just ridiculous. What we do instead is say, okay, you want to go out there and get tubed. Okay, so here is the 150 things, you know, that you have to learn that are going to be skills you'll need, the pieces of the puzzle that you're going to need to put together in order to make that happen. I think we can get through the first 12 of them this week and then you can see the rest of the roadmap here in front of you. And, and you've just given them a really honest and really specific layout roadmap of all of those skills. And then they can see how far away that goal is. And, and usually it, it's not really that you're saying you can't achieve as much as you thought you could. It's that you're saying that goal is way further away than you thought it was. And then you're in a position to put a goal in. So, you know, that process needs to be done in whatever area you're working in. If it's in surfing, it needs to be done with a surf coach who's got the, the experience and the ability to do that. And then as soon as you've got that goal, you want to just take it for granted, put it on one side, and you want to spend all your time and energy focusing on the systems instead. I, I think you just used my absolute favorite coaching example. Oftentimes, people come and say, hey, you know what? I really want to get barreled, or 
oh, I want to learn how to do errors or frontside error verses. And just as a goal like that, and you can actually see it in people surfing when they just put all the effort into that. They miss a lot of the, the pieces along the way. And even if you can't get to getting barreled or, or learn that error verse by breaking it up and giving the system to get there, like, look, your stance has to be correct first for the amount of compression needed to get in that barrel. Or you need to be choosing this correct line to get the speed to hit that lip at the angle to do the, the air. Um, sometimes having that system in place and having all the structure and steps to get there is almost more empowering than like, hey, took you out and we got a barrel. Yeah, because you just learn to improve so much more over the long run. It's just so much better in the in the total package. So, so something that we talk to the guests about when they arrive at the start of their week, and and we've talked about this on the show before, but is that idea that you can go out and we see this every single day at Surf Simply. You can go out and surf really, really well. So, let's say, for example, the skill that you're working on is identifying waves predicting what they're going to do identifying where spot x where the takeoff spot is going to be developing the agility to paddle over uh, and then predicting whether the wave is going to go left or right what sections it's going to have which way you're going to angle right now let's say you're doing that process really really well but the waves just are not great that day there's a few that are on shore and closing out and they, they look like they're going to do one thing and then they get a little bit hit by a funky rip coming out and they do something not quite expected. And that one wave comes, it's really good, but someone's already on it. And because you were looking so well, you noticed they were there and you didn't drop in on them and you pulled off the wave and you come in from the session feeling like, oh, I suck. And equally, you can go out first time, second time out the back, have no idea what's going on, do almost everything wrong. And with a little bit of help from a coach, maybe get this beautiful wave, go screaming all the way down the line and feel like, you know, you're king of the world. So if you put all of your importance on the results of the surf, on the goals you have and haven't achieved, you end up on this emotional roller coaster of surfing, which is just exhausting and demotivating. I mean, how many times have you guys got out of the water and felt like you just really wanted to punch your board or seen other people do the same thing? Most surfs. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, if you're able to have the maturity to actually step back and say, my goal is not to go out here and get barreled. My goal is to surf every day for the next 40 years. You know, and, and I say the word my goal is, what I really mean is I want to have the system of surfing on an ongoing basis. Yeah. You know, then you are going to get better at getting barreled because you're surfing every day for the next 40 years. So you know, the specific system that we use that we've talked about on, on, on the show a lot before is you know, we give the people who come and stay with us four or five drills to do, very specific ones. And we see the ways that they, they can and can't do those things. And then we identify what the limiting factors are that they need to work on. And then that system of ticking off one limiting factor, moving on to the next one, learning how to practice each thing and consider it ticked off, not when you've perfected it, not when you've achieved the goal, but rather when you know how to practice it well. That's, that's really what we're focusing on. Then, then you're giving people the keys to go away and keep getting better rather than giving them goals, which they may or may not. And there are so many skills in surfing as well. You know, when you've got barreled once, well, that's not the end of the learning process. You know, Kelly Slater is still getting better at getting barreled, at doing a basic cutback. You know, all the guys on the world tour are improving their cutbacks session by session. And, and exactly as you said, you know, when you hit that target, are you going to stop? And, and I think surfing is... Surfing and golf, I guess, are two of those sports where actually you just never, there is always that next step. There is always that next little bit that's just out of reach. And if you can just do that one thing, then you'd be happy. 
So I think you know setting the systems in place to where you're you're going out and you're you're working on and improving your surfing and putting a smile on your face at the same time is so much more important than than an arbitrary line in the sand. So a couple of my favourite systems, one that we we talk about at work quite a lot. This is not to do with surfing, but this is just like back of house surf simply stuff and how we run the business. We we have this system by which if anything goes wrong and you know like we were talking about with the wsl judging panel like inevitably mm-hmm. mistakes get made and things go wrong so we have this uh, like philosophy that you do whatever needs to be done right in that moment to fix whatever that's got that's gone wrong if there's no coffee you just go out and buy coffee you don't worry about whose job it was right you just go and get it you make sure there's coffee in, in the rancho right but then what you do is the second phase is you set up a new system so that whatever it was that went wrong can never go wrong again so you, you, for example, we add to the Rancho breakdown list for every evening that the coffee has to be checked so that we know we're never going to run out of coffee again. And that way, as a team, number one, no one's ever getting blamed. And number two, we're never getting tripped up by the same thing twice because you can't anticipate things that are going to trip you up for the first time, you know. But mm-hmm. <laughs> what was that George Bush quote? If you fool me once, shame on what you. If you fool me twice, you ain't ever going to fool me again. <laughs> you're gonna, you're not gonna... Fool me that second time. <laughs> uh, another thing that we talk about on the show a lot, uh, this has got to be the greatest system anyone has ever come up with, which is the, the system of science, right? Which is the, I have an idea. I see if the idea is wrong. If the idea isn't wrong, then I'm more confident that it's right until I can definitely prove it wrong. And the longer I can't prove it wrong for, the more confident I am that it's right. You know, and I think it's that, like, that idea is amazing and it's, and it's progressed us more in the last 200 years as a species than every idea we had in the preceding like, you know, 190,000 years as a species. And, uh, you know, we live twice as long and we can get at other planets and all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, that, uh, that system of, of reality testing which we call science, is just absolutely amazing. And, and it's not a body of knowledge, a set of facts. And I think quite often people forget that. I'm going to leave you with this. Don't take on systems that are unsustainable. And don't take on systems that require too much willpower. Because if it's requiring a lot of willpower to keep going, as your willpower ebbs, you're going to find it difficult to keep that system going. So listen to emails. While we've been off air, we've again had quite a few. I think we mentioned in the last episode that we had a bit of a backlog of listener emails. And we are going to try and work our way through it. Maybe we need to do a... Uh, listener email special again and, and maybe just, yeah maybe the next we've got a little break between now and the rear contest maybe the next one we can do a few listener emails anyway one that i did want to uh want to just touch on was an email i got from darcy Rowland. so darcy writes i was listening to the snapper and self-coaching podcast i very much enjoyed it but i do have one criticism during the podcast when you were discussing the wsl and the roxy pro someone called the surfers girls Professional surfers are not girls, they are women or ladies. Surfing is a chosen profession for these ladies, not just a hobby. People would not call the men on the CT, for example, boys, so the women deserve the same courtesy. I shared this feedback last year with the WSL, and I don't think I can take credit for this, but I did notice that towards the tail end of last season and this year, the commentators have used the word girls less often. It was particularly noticeable during the Margaret River event, when Peter Mel corrected himself when he started saying girls and stopped mid-word and said women. Women continue to progress in the sport, and the words we use need to match that progression. Words have power, and they do matter, and there's a big difference between a woman and a girl. So I actually had a, a little back and forward with Darcy, and she teaches communication to college students. 
And uh, so I actually asked her, you know, at, at what point would you draw that line uh, between women and girls? Because you've obviously got the, the World Junior Series has an age cutoff of 21, but you've also got Tyler Wright qualifying for the World Tour at 16. So there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of gray area there. And the, the line that Darcy gave me was that for the surf world, my recommendation would be that once you qualify for the World Tour, you've made a clear distinction as a professional, that level being the deciding factor regardless of age. The WQS has more wiggle room. As surfers go through the QS, they are often deciding if they have the stuff to become professional. The younger surfers are also working out their own personal identities. So for a QS surfer, you would have to pick the pronoun that is most appropriate for that surfer which still leaves that, that quite big gray area, I think, as to, as to what the correct term would be. And I don't, I, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but certainly I'm, a, I'm aware that you know, boys and girls is a much more common expression in Australia. You often hear the Australian commenters and competitors do refer to the males as boys. Uh, you'll hear Mick Fanning talking about his peers as boys all the time. All right, so I've got a couple of thoughts about that. I basically agree with her that being aware of feminist issues is incredibly important. Like, you know, as, as you guys know, I'm such a raging feminist that I even bore my feminist friends talking about feminism. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I'm, I'm totally on board with Darcy in that it is really important to address issues which are highlighting assumptions that we're making about the way we talk about women and the role that we give them in society and in sports specifically. And I'm not sure if Darcy remembers, but we actually did a full half hour section not long ago on women and transgender categorization within sports. So, I, you know, I'm on board with the sentiment behind it. I actually disagree with her that this is a battle worth fighting. The word girls comes from the Germanic word go, which means children. Um, the word ladies, which she brought up, comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for people who make bread. So, I don't know, make of that what you will. <laughs> the point is, you don't want to take words based on their original meaning, and the meaning of words change. And it's not implausible that the meaning of the word girls can change, while the meaning of the word boys doesn't change. For example, the Oxford Dictionary defines girls as A, a female child, but also B, a young or relatively young woman. Now, the average age of the top 10 surfers in the world is 24, which you could say is a young or relatively young woman. Um, it also says a, that girls can mean women who mix together socially or um, at work, mm. as in I'm going out for a drink with the girls. That could be a group of 40 or 50-year-old women that are saying that. You know, So I, I don't think that the word girls necessarily has to be derogatory. Actually, in the What to Watch section, my What to Watch was uh, Lakey Peterson doing that video about airs where she refers to the women surfers as girls all the way through the video. And I think that Lakey Peterson is one of the best female role models and just a champion of feminism, even if she's not intending to be that. One of the big problems with feminism at the moment is the perception of feminism. And I think hammering home points like this help entrench the negative view of feminism that it's criticizing well-intentioned people for things mm -hmm. where they clearly don't mean anything negative putting them on the defensive making them feel like oh feminism you know rather than feel like this is something i want to get on board with and i definitely don't think that this is this this is the the battlefield where feminism wants to stick its its flag in the ground um there's a really good <laughs> ted talk by chimamanda and gozi adichie uh, that I, I recommend people check out on online she just does a really good kind of overview of feminism in a, a very funny and witty way okay ladies and gentlemen before we go our regular what to watch section we start we need little themes for some of these sections 
I feel like contest roundup should be like. Yeah, I was actually listening to our last episode of the podcast, and I was thinking that we should get different stings for different. It would be good if we've got any listeners out there who are musical musician type producery people, and you want to make us some little stings for different parts of the podcast. That would just be awesome. We would love it. Harrison, what have you got for us? My what to watch for this podcast is an edit of Shane Dorian called Lemon Pepper. Dorian's still one of my favorite surfers by far. The edit is insane. He's surfing this, I'm almost positive, someone correct me if I'm wrong, the wave that he's surfing in the beginning of the edit, I'm pretty sure it's the same wave that was dubbed the Lava Monster in the July 2011 issue of Surfer Magazine. That, um, that video is just amazing. The wave looks mental and he's charging and the description of the wave in that magazine was, it's basically a wave that ends over dry reef and it's lava rocks super sharp it's like a super remote wave in in hawaii that i guess is also pretty fickle but nonetheless the edit's insane um his small wave surfing is still out of control and it's it's cool to see that he's still putting out footage of that quality i love that you can see all the wipeouts and the ones that are going wrong you know what i mean yeah. i like how that's how they started the video as well they're like here's five not makes yeah, yeah. It, I think it just shows how difficult that wave probably is to surf because he's an amazing tube rider. I, yeah. I, I love that he pulls into the one at the start, the first wave, and it's basically a solid 10-point barrel. Mm -hmm. And then the whole thing just doubles up like a mutant shipstone's bluff and the door closes and he gets clamped and there's no way out. And I like to think that he paddled out of that one and was like, oh, that was awesome, I'm going to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think out of anyone to start an edit with five wipeouts Shane Dorian's the right guy because I mean no one's really going to question his commitment on a wave so oh, yeah. I think starting off with his misses are, are are pretty great I will say that some of the names for surf edits these days are a bit of a stretch <laughs> yeah that was an interesting lemon one lemon pepper his last one was plate lunch yeah yeah it was wasn't it yeah maybe he's got a food theme going on because, I guess yeah. Rui what's your uh, what to watch so <laughs> my what to watch is and it's not a surfing video but it's, I think it's just the most important thing that everyone should watch and make their children watch that's going around the interwebs at the moment. Neil deGrasse Tyson just put out a video like three or four days ago called Science in America. And he just talks about the importance of, you know, it was the day before the science marches, which happened, I guess, the, yesterday. And, uh, and he just talks about the importance of giving appropriate due respect to the scientific consensus on any given issue rather than just, you know, picking whatever you want to believe in and just believing in that. Very good. Asha? My What to Watch was inspired by Kelly Slater's recent uninspiring performance through the Australian leg. Yeah, I wanted to get a little Kelly Slater spark back in there. So I found a, a, a clip of his original section in Momentum, the closing section, which is a bit grainy, but the surfing is phenomenal. And it has one of my favorite intros to any surf clip ever. It's Kelly Slater just getting beat up in boxing. He's like just getting punched and he's really frustrated and he throws his gloves off. And he's like, oh, let's just go surfing. I'm way better at that. And it's just, Boxing is so hard. It's like the hardest thing. And um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great clip and it'll remind you uh, of what Kelly Slater can do. Very good. Well, I've, I've, got, uh, I've actually got two uh, what to watches for you. The one I was going to use is uh, Thunder Down Under which Catch Surfer put together, and it's Jamie O'Brien and various other people throwing themselves into stupid waves in Western Australia on soft-top surfboards. Very often, multiple people on one wave, and I'm thoroughly in favor of that sort of silliness. I uh, love how Jamie O'Brien just doesn't take surfing seriously at all. Yeah. 
Uh, and then if you watch back-to-back videos with people that take surfing very seriously and talk about how it's, you know, the, the core meaning of life and a center to their spirituality. And then there's Jamie yep. O'Brien throwing himself <laughs> over the ledge into an <laughs> inflatable flamingo. Well, so the other one is that uh, GoPro have gone back to Tahiti and Chopu with uh, some virtual reality equipment and they've released another edit. Uh, so for all of those of you... The, the, these videos are always a bit hard to watch on a flat screen, but for those of you that got access to something like a, a cardboard viewer or a 3D goggles, throw this one in because it's pretty awesome. Oh, it's so worth buying one of those cardboard viewers on Amazon. What are they like, nine dollars? Oh, if that. I think yeah, and you just and you, it's uh, so listeners, if you haven't seen, is it called Google Cardboard? Google Cardboard. Yeah. And then yeah, you just it's like nine bucks. It's a piece of cardboard. You fold it up, and it just lets you slot your phone into it, so you can sort of wear it like you know one of those old slidey things. Ah, oh, the old slidey things. The old, oh, you know, what are these red things where you put I, t- I actually do know I'm what you're so talking much about. older than you. No, no, I know what you're talking <laughs> about, and I have no idea what they'd be called. They're the goggles, and you click it, and the slides go by. They're circular discs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. See, I'm thinking about a thing from my childhood, and you're thinking about a thing you've probably seen in a museum. An artifact <laughs> from the past. <laughs> uh, it's called a Viewmaster. The Viewmaster. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is all that we've got time for for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, uh, you can get hold of me through podcast at surfsimply.com. Uh, you can get hold of the rest of the guys through their social media feeds. Harrison, you're on? Um, on Instagram as at Harrison Avery. Rue? I'm on Twitter at Surfing Simply and on Instagram as Simply Rue Hill. Asher, you're at? I'm uh, King underscore Asher, and I'd like to uh, do a little disclaimer. I've had a lot of people ask me lately, like, oh, King Asher, that's a bit uh, self-righteous. <laughs> it's, it's just my name. My name's Asher King. So I thought it was clever to put it backwards. But hey, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. The internet is a harsh place. Yeah. Deeply, deeply. All right. Well, on that, uh, on that note, from all of us here, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. How did America rise up from a backwoods country to be one of the greatest nations the world has ever known? We pioneered industries. And all of this required the greatest innovations in science and technology in the world. And so science is a fundamental part of the country that we are. But in this, the 21st century, when it comes time to make decisions about science, it seems to me people have lost the ability to judge what is true and what is not. What is reliable, what is not reliable. What should you believe, what should you not believe. And when you have people who don't know much about science standing in denial of it and rising to power, that is a recipe for the complete dismantling of our informed democracy. Let us demand that educators around America teach evolution not as fact, but as theory. An increasing number of parents showing skepticism about vaccinations. Voters have approved a ban on GMOs. They call climate change unproven science. That's not the country I remember growing up in. Not that we didn't have challenges. 
I'm old enough to remember the 60s and the 70s. We've got a hot war and a cold war, civil rights movement, and all this was going on. But I don't remember any time where people were standing in denial of what science was. One of the great things about science is that it is an entire exercise in finding what is true. You have a hypothesis, you test it. I get a result. A rival of mine double checks it because they think I might be wrong. They perform an even better experiment than I did and they find out, hey, this experiment matches. Oh my gosh, we're onto something here. And out of this rises a new emergent truth. It does it better than anything else we have ever come up with as human beings. This is science. It's not something to toy with. It's not something to say, I choose not to believe equals MC squared. You don't have that option. When you have an established scientific emergent truth, it is true whether or not you believe in it. And the sooner you understand that, the faster we can get on with the political conversations about how to solve the problems that face us. So once you understand that humans are warming the planet, you can then have a political conversation about that. You can say, well, should we, are there carbon credits? Do we do this? Do we put a tariff on, do we fund, do we subsidize? Those, those have political answers. And every minute one is in denial, you are delaying the political solution that should have been established years ago. As a voter, as a citizen, scientific issues will come before you and isn't it worth it to say, all right, let me at least become scientifically literate so that I can think about these issues and act intelligently upon them. Recognize what science is and allow it to be what it can and should be in the service of civilization. It's in our hands.